Murdoch's greenwash and the fallacy of the coalition, insecure work and the pandemic, has Morrison learned nothing? And the good news is about plastics. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and joining me from the newly liberated freedoms of Sydney (laughs) is the great, the magnificent, the four and a half star reviewed Van Batham. How are you, Van? (laughs) Um, well, I, I am pretty happy with the reviews of my adaptation of George Orwell's Animal Farm that is currently showing at the Heath Ledger Theatre at the State Theatre Centre of WA in Perth. And, uh, yes, it has done unbelievably well. So we've had a couple of more reviews. We've got four stars in Arts Hub and we got four stars in the Australian Book Review and it's been pretty wall-to-wall positive, to be fair. Fantastic. Well, that's Yeah, really... I'm pretty happy about it. And a huge thank you to the cast and crew who unusually, given the lockdown situation, had to rehearse a brand new play without the writer there. So they've really come through for me and I, I can't tell them how grateful I am. Well, that's fantastic news. Congratulations to you and to everyone involved at the Black Swan State Theatre Company of Western Australia. Ben, this is also an auspicious episode for the week on wednesday it is our 100th recording 100 recordings who would believe it (laughs) something we started in our shed we're now doing via two microphones with me in sydney and you still with the dog on your lap you know we're no frills here people we just bring it bringing it to you raw it's as much as we can manage usually to work out how to do the intro music that's right well congratulations to everyone who has listened to us over the course of the journey so far. For your good judgment. Congratulations for your good judgment, listeners. Thank That's you. That's right, for sharing the episodes, for talking about it. We got some great feedback over the last week uh, from some organisers who have shared uh, the week on Wednesday with delegates in workplaces. They've had workplace Union organisers, by the way. Not everybody works for a union or understands <laughs> the parlance, union organisers. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, it's been great to hear that that people are discussing it on, the, on, on work sites around the country, talking about the issues that we talk about right here on the week on Wednesday. Can you believe that, Van? I'm, I, <laughs> I think it's fantastic. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I'm pretty happy about it as well because, I mean, what we try and do with this podcast is, I mean, obviously we are very proud of the beliefs that we hold. We don't pretend at neutrality. That's not really our act. Uh, ben and I are salt of the earth types who who like to be upfront about who we are and what we stand for. And certainly we started this podcast because we wanted to have a conversation with people in the framework of the values they have that was accessible and welcoming, which is why you'll notice if you join our Facebook group or look at any properties online, we did an image that says, come on in, you're welcome here. And we're always really encouraged about the work that we try and do when people go, yeah, I, like there are no barriers to entry because we're like, well, that's that's who we are. That's what we stand for. Absolutely. And if this is your first time listening to The Week on Wednesday, you are welcome here. And I'd encourage you to join your union. We, we In every episode, we encourage people to join their union. Australian unions have been a great supporter of uh, the podcast uh, throughout. And you can join online, australianunions.org.au slash week on Wednesday. That's wow. Uh, sorry, slash wow for week on Wednesday, australianunions.org.au slash wow for week on Wednesday. Uh, and, yeah, it's always great. If you do if you do join up, do let us know. If you, if you share this with friends and family, let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about these issues that we talk about today. And if you've listened to other episodes, do let us know your thoughts on those as well. You can comment on the Podbean site, the Apple uh, podcast site or Facebook or Twitter, wherever. We try and get back to people when we can. And we also really like it when people say, can you cover this issue? Like we're always happy to to do the research and just so everybody knows, between us we have how many degrees? Seven or something. We're really good. We're professionally trained researchers. So it's not, oh, I'll check a YouTube video and get back to you. Uh, Lizards control my my brain, blada, blada. Um, That's not not the research we do. But when people go, look, I just, I want to know about superannuation or I want to know about hydrogen or renewable technology or any of the things that become important social issues, like just ask us and we'll work it out and talk to you about it. 
Absolutely. And Van, let's dive into talking about lizards controlling brains. I want to talk about the <laughs> I want to talk about the Murdoch media greenwashing that's been going on. Did you like that segue? I literally I can't tell you listeners uh Ben and I obviously have been physically separated, if totally emotionally conjoined, for the past four months, and I genuinely cannot tell you how much I miss this guy. <laughs> I just can't even tell you how much I miss this guy. So, so I miss you too, darling. <laughs> Having Look. a cry. Don't mind me, everybody. <laughs> Look, let, let's let's talk about the lizards controlling brains because the the Murdoch tabloids <laughs> have started. A mission zero, and I want to be really clear about this. I I support getting to net zero emissions, right? Like I have for a long time, and anyone who's listened to this show knows that you do too, Van. Right? Anyone who's ever heard you speak on environment or climate issues knows that you do as well. So, I think the great surprise in this is that suddenly the Murdoch tabloids do. <laughs> I think this is where people have been thrown for a bit of a six, because. Uh, as as late as last week, the the sort of official tabloid line from the Murdoch Empire was still quite down on the concept of uh, taking any action on climate. But on Monday, all of the Murdoch tabloids around Australia ran sixteen page liftouts apparently and wrap around. I love how that's pages. an apparently because obviously we don't buy them. Yeah, I re- that's research I refuse to do. I'm not buying a Murdoch <laughs> newspaper. Um, <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. Uh, if someone's got a photo of the liftouts, feel free to send it to me on Twitter, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going into a news agent and picking up the Herald Sun. I'd, I'd rather cut off my hand. Um, so anyway, the, 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 you know, we should give praise where praise is due. They've pulled together a coalition of, of people who have an interest in this and the coalition people of the that we know who we know have been very active in this space in terms of advocating for communities and workers' rights. Tony Marr from the CFMU Mining and Energy Division, uh, Dan Walton uh, from the Australian Workers' Union. You know, these people have been at the forefront of what a transition to net zero emissions looks like and how workers' rights are protected. Kelly O'Shaughnessy, who you and I both know from the Australian Conservation Foundation, who has worked extensively in the environmental sector around what kind of programs could be done to revitalise the environment. And then, of course, you've got the people who are actually the ones who, you know, with all due respect to those other people and to many people that we know, the people who have essentially convinced Rupert that there's money to be made now in net zero, and that's Twiggy Forrest from Fortescue Future Industries, Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian, and Anthony Pratt from Vizzy, who all have multi-billion dollar investments in renewable energy programs uh, like green hydrogen, like solar farms, uh, like paper recycling. So there's a real uh, there's a real kind of capitalist flavor to this now. Like it's sort of weird how it's gone from capitalism says we can't do net zero to capitalism is demanding we do net zero. Oh, it's it's genuinely hilarious. And I think the I think the you know it's interesting too, right? Because people have said, "Oh, well, this is greenwashing," and and Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd have both been very vocal in their view that Mur- Murdoch stifled action on climate change, right? Like, and and quite rightly, it's hard to pick up a news call paper from before Monday and not see them attacking, you know climate action. And frankly, their colonists are still doing it. So there's an element of bet hedging here, I think, from Murdoch. You know, Bolt, Gleeson, Panahi, they've all come out and criticised this mission zero uh, that's that's being run uh, and Hildebrand is the the journalist uh, who's in charge of it. So it's still a very, I think... Uh, hedged position that the Murdochs are taking, but they've certainly moved away from outright and total hostility towards climate action. Yeah, so, I mean, they don't really have any choice. I mean, you and I have spoken about this on this show a lot, that 
part of the frustration with the the project to get to net zero in Australia has been having a coalition government who have done literally everything they could possibly do to stymie climate action, everything they could do. We are, compared to the rest of the world, incredibly behind. And it's really interesting speaking to friends who live in Europe about the way that climate action is just part of the everyday conversation there. It's not something that's happening at a policy distance from people. You know, I had a work meeting with a English colleague last night who was, I mean, it was just really odd to hear people talk about, you know, plant-based, plant-based technology and, and you know, a plant-based diet and that this is a mainstream conversation because they're talking about climate impacts of food production and that's that's not just the incredibly politically switched on person, that's the ordinary citizen. Last time we were in Britain, you and I noticed that, you know, the climate conversation was sort of everywhere and, you know, just meeting people who have jobs in the climate space that there, there was an extraordinary guy who I met uh, when I was in England, not with you, but the time before that, it was a mould man and his job was to assess because obviously in Britain so much wealth is tied up with, um, you know, objects of value and treasures mm, and mm. paintings and tapestries and all of the things they plundered the rest of the world for. Yeah, the things they yeah. plundered the rest of the world or celebrated their plundering of the rest of the yeah. world with. They had they had this whole sort of government department that was dedicated to going around and assessing, you know, your mould capacity and your mould risk. And this mould man, his job was to go to your stately home and go, oh, yeah, you know, you need to do these things to minimise your mould because of climate change or it will have this impact and, and make these kind of assessments. And it's it, it's just the rest of the world is moving. Extraordinary news this week that Prince Charles, like we are mm. not talking about communists here. You know, the, the reality I think is dawning on a lot of people that climate action is not a left-wing conspiracy to turn the world into a, you know, new world order socialist state. I mean, as as desirable as that might be for someone like me, um, it, it is, it's just a material reality that we have to adjust around. And, and the Australian coalition government have done everything they can to stymie that conversation and pretend it's not happening or we're not responsible for it or the rest of the world should really do something else. I did the drum with Philip Ruddick and it was maybe even like, five years ago where I was like there's so much opportunity for Australia to create manufacturing opportunities and mm. to lead the world and we're the only sovereign nation that has all the natural minerals to make a battery. We're the only ones we could lead this, blah, blah, blah. And Philip Ruddock, you know, former um, Howard Cabinet Minister, was like, oh, that's a bit impertinent. He actually used the word <laughs> impertinent to describe me because I was saying why are we not taking the commercial opportunity? And I'm like... I'm the socialist on this panel, Phil. I'm like, I'm talking about commercial opportunities. I don't think that's impertinent. I think that's me being really collaborative around this existential threat to humanity. Like well, I'm willing to accept a bit of capitalism if it means we don't all burn to death or drown. Like that's literally where we're at. But it's been this retrograde sort of stubbornness, which is, of course, based in their relationships with donors and what's convenient. And I'm sure it's got nothing to do with the fact that Matt Canavan's brother is a coal miner, like I'm sure. And when I say coal miner, I mean runs a coal mine, not, yeah, not works no, in right. one. I failed I mean, coal mine. He, he, yeah, let's, he, let's not. He used to run a coal mine. <laughs> let's not give the Canavan family the blue-collar credibility they so desperately crave with an amazing parade of public outfits. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this is the thing. The rest of the world is moving on. Prince Charles criticised Scott Morrison for not coming to Glasgow. Yeah. Prince Charles. Yeah. That, he- that absolute unapologetic leftist. <laughs> well, apparently his Aston Martin runs on... Uh, sort of biofuel of leftover wine and cheese. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's been in this for a while. In yeah. Britain, one of my favourite gifts to give theatre companies after I did a production with them was a selection of Prince Charles biscuits. I just thought that was amazing. Like yeah. have a snack after the show and it's all organically farmed and sustainable. And, you know, if they're going to persist with a royal family that they do foist on the rest of us, Australia, why did you not vote for the Republic? Why? But- I mean, I'd prefer, I'd certainly prefer they're running organic farms than whatever <laughs> despicable things Prince Andrew has been up to. Yes. So, Man, I, want to, I want to come back to that point, right? Like this is about now. hereditary not, monarchy and why it is bad. Well, yes, we agree with that fundamentally. But the, the point that you're making here, right, I think is, is really core to the argument now that, yes, 
there's going to be, and already, you know, Canavan has sort of lashed out at Prince Charles, um, which I'm sure <laughs> Charles will take with that kind of response. Uh, but this sort of idea that, oh, it's elitists, it's elitists, this from a man who worked from a global consulting firm. Um, but the, the reality is it's right across the spectrum, right? Because you've got the AMWU, the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union. On the same that, side as Prince Charles. On the same side as Prince Charles saying we want to, we want the manufacturing jobs. We want the 400,000 manufacturing jobs that could be created by having good renewable industry investment here in Australia. You've got, you know, the AWU and the CFMU Mining Division, a left and right union. Um, and two unions, by the way, that have had, you know, considerable rivalries over the past yeah. more than 100 years, everyone. Yeah. Work, not only working together but effectively on the same side as Twiggy Forest who owns Australia's largest iron ore mining operations, right, uh, a, a, a guy from whom they've had numerous industrial conflicts in the past, you know, You've got this real coalition now of people from all walks of life, all uh, kind of points on the political spectrum going, actually, if we do this well, we can all win. Now, there is... Um, and not drown or burn to death, which, I mean, would be great, right? But this is the thing, right? Like I look at it and we need to be really clear about how this plays out politically in in my view this is this is my view and you might have a different one van so feel free to jump in right but <laughs> the, the there's a reality here where you've got twiggy forest australia's richest iron ore baron who has just announced the world's largest green hydrogen facility in queensland for which he was given the land by the queensland government right he's also heating up the Tasmanian government for access to the hydro energy that they generate. Now, Tasmanian Hydro is saying you can't have that energy. We need it to sell back into the mainland grid. Uh, Tasmanian government's going, oh, well, Twiggy wants it, and he says he'll create 3,000 jobs, right? You've also got Origin and you've also got uh, Woodside who want access to that hydro energy. You've got it, these these people are looking for their subsidy. They're looking for their next. They know they can get a market if they can get enough subsidy to create a market. You know, they they will they will get to a point where the world's cars will run on hydrogen fuel cells, where electricity grids will run on hydrogen that they've burned as well. The technology now has caught up. You know. It used to be that hydrogen, you'd burn more coal to create hydrogen by extracting it from water than the energy you'd get from the hydrogen. But gee, didn't blimps look nice, right? Like that was sort of the Everybody situation. knows I'm unapologetically pro-blimp. Everybody, <laughs> I certainly recommend you review some previous episodes of the show where I talk about amazing advances in what's known as dirigible technology, that is that's the right. modern airship, uh, which is going on in Britain at the moment that's been supported by the lead singer of Iron Maiden as well as the British government. So the, the point is, though, that now the technology is there to expend less energy in the creation of hydrogen than you'll get when you burn the hydrogen for energy, right? And hydrogen burns clean. That's why it's such an attractive fuel. The problem is it doesn't occur naturally anywhere on planet Earth. Interesting fact, it's the universe's most common element, just doesn't occur naturally by itself anywhere on Earth. Such a funny little planet we live on, right? At the same time, you've got uh, uh, you've got the guy from Atlassian building... Uh, a $22 billion solar farm in the outback at Tennant Creek and creating what people are calling a sun cable to link the cities of Australia to solar power. Like the, these, and, you know, obviously getting all kinds of support and, and support for that. So that part of the what needs to happen around climate action in terms of the billionaires are on board, unions are working through it, environment groups have obviously been working through it for a long time, you know, the ruling class is there. What seems to be the hold up now for Scott Morrison is that, you know, people sometimes I think forget that the Liberal Party does not have the numbers in Parliament to rule on its own. It has to be in coalition with somebody and the only political party who would be prepared to be in coalition and have Scott Morrison as Prime Minister is the National Party. 
I don't think they're the I'm, – I'm going to disagree here. I don't think they're the only ones. I think if One Nation had the opportunity to be in government. Oh, yeah, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe. And I also want to say this. The only party with the numbers. Yeah, yeah. At the moment, the only party with the numbers. But I'd also like to make this point because I lived through this when this happened in Britain um, when the Liberal Democrats made their deal with the devil with the Conservative Party and were like, oh, we'll moderate them and we'll get all these gains for the environment, which didn't happen. Um, the Greens would go into coalition with the Liberal Party if that was ever offered to them. They voted with the Liberal Party before. They cut the pension with the Liberal Party very infamously in 2015 mm. um, because their superior understanding as a party full of university academics and doctors um, was that, you know, like working class people don't need that much money to retire apparently. Um, and I just want everybody to be very aware of that, like... Small L liberals got a liberal and they generally find a way. So it's interesting. A very long list of reasons why I do not trust the Greens for garbage is because I went through this in the UK and which the Liberal Democrats were like the Greens there really, even though there's a Green Party. There are like you, 10 of them and they refuse to catch clients. Just, just pointed out there. You're going you're gonna to hate this next point, Van, because on this I think you are actually uh, on the same page as Barnaby Joyce. Uh, because Barnaby Joyce uh, has made- that have never been uttered in public before. <laughs> because Barnaby Joyce is trying to position the National Party as being the party for the for low income and oppressed people. So he was on the seven thirty report last mm-hmm. night. Uh, so Tuesday, the twelfth of October. Look it up. Uh, it was a remarkable performance. Uh, for all the wrong reasons, and I, you know, and I'm not going to say anything. You know, this is our hundredth recording. We haven't been sued for defamation yet. I don't intend to put us in a position to be sued for defamation today, but I will say that I have never seen a deputy prime minister of Australia go on 7:30 and give an interview where he has stifled burps uh, and seemed so incredibly tired and emotional, Mr. Speaker. Incredibly I mean, he's got a lot. Tired and emotional. I, I hear he doesn't know the contents of Scott Morrison's diary, which is really fascinating for someone who's the actual deputy prime minister of this country. It was a really weird thing because what he was, I think, trying to get to was, and he made this this point was actually clear: the Greens electorate, Greens electorates are the wealthiest electorates, then Liberal Party electorates and independent electorates, then Labor, then the National Party. And we've heard this from Bridget McKenzie as well, right? That that oh, we've got to look after, we've got to look after the rural people because rural people are the poorest people, and they'll be left behind. Which and, is why you supported robo debt, Bridget, or well, this is, spending money on sports rorts. How is that actually helping impoverished rural people? Well, because you know I Ben wanna, and I, I live in a rural community. Ben, I want to come back to sports rorts because I think there's there's a point there too, right? Like it's about how they're positioning themselves because he was asked time and again and Mackenzie has been asked time and again about, well, what do you need to see? Like what, what are you looking for in the government's position? You know, you're in government. Oh, well, it's a liberal, it'll be a liberal party policy, you know, where the, where the uh, junior members of the government, you know, all this sort of stuff. And they don't have an answer to this pretty simple question, like what do you need to see? What does it need to look like? Do you support getting to net zero by 2030 or not Um, or 2050 or 2070 or what do you support? Well, you know, they've got to come to us with a proposal. Well, what needs to be in it? Oh, they've got to come to us with a proposal. So there's a bit of outsider working on the inside kind of positioning You always know there's going to be an election in Australia when the National Party start referring to the Liberals as the government, as if they're not a part of it. Like this is the standard playbook, is that they run this diffusion brand of conservatism that is one of the most cynical vote-hoovering exercises that you will ever see in any democracy. They are truly disgusting. And I say that as someone who, if they're not trapped in Sydney, lives in a, a rural community like... You and I live in an mm. area that used to be very solidly National Party and has swung very firmly Labor now because, the, I mean, our analysis is because the impact of climate change and this absolutely, I can only really describe it as, you know, Scrooge welfare policy, you know, this abrogation of responsibility mm. to Australians with disabilities and their families, this abrogation of responsibility around issues like, 
you know, tangible material welfare support in communities that have social problems. And I'm going to speak very honestly and say that in rural Australia, things like addiction and rehabilitation are really, really big issues. And yet we get this like constant tough love rhetoric from the conservative parties, making things harder and more complex for families. And, you know, addiction is a family problem, not an individual problem. It's a community problem. And yet, you know, it's about punishing welfare recipients, purporting false stereotypes, failing to recognise problems, investing in boondoggles like, you know, rifle ranges as opposed to actual material benefits for the community and doing nothing about climate change, which is, of course, the biggest single threat to Australian agricultural primary producers. Like it's just and doing nothing about employment, not encouraging any Australian manufacturing at all. Like they're just, it's just outrageous. But, I mean, he's right about the demographic breakdown, about who votes for who. Mm. Um, as an environmentalist, I'd also like to point out that the greatest consumption of hardwood products from agroforests forests in Australia are in the green seats. So it's a, it's a really bizarre situation, right? The National Party clearly has more lower house MPs and more senators than the Greens. Uh, but outside of Queensland, the National Party vote is 4.5%. In Queensland, that's it is a fusion brand, the LNP, Liberal National Party, and you know they obviously uh, do much better. They if they get uh, you know whatever it is, 35, 36% of the vote. Um, but they they're really positioning now, right? Like it's not about they're not they're not going to. They're not going to lose the few lower house seats that they have in the regions by supporting a, uh, a a position on getting to net zero. That's incredibly unlikely. Nationals lose seats to liberals and they lose seats to independents. They might eventually become Labor, but the first instance is they've got to lose to a liberal or an independent. So what they're doing now is they're going through a process of extracting the highest possible price. And this is why what you said before about the pork barreling stuff, I think this is there's a sort of counterintuitiveness here, right, from our side of politics. We like to talk about how they're corrupt and the pork barreling and all the rest of it. But they like to talk about it too. Like they take pride in it. Right. This is they take pride in the delivery of the rifle range and the polo club and all the all these bits and pieces because that's what their pre-selectors like. You know, it's delivering. It's the outsider working on the inside delivering for their constituency. Yeah, and, and delivering th- projects that financially benefit. Yeah, and when a I say very small number of people. Yeah, when we talk about the constituents, about. we're not talking about the population of the electorate. I mean, that would just be ridiculous. No, because you that's know, right. spending spending time in rural electorates where the that have national party MPs, it's quite obvious that the benefits flow to the few, not the many, and certainly not the people who need the most help. I mean, that's there ain't no poverty like rural poverty. Let me tell you. And, and the interesting thing about this, right, is that the Farmers' Federation in every state and the Farmers' Federation nationally and and there are rural advocates in just about every rural community who talk about the need to deal with uh, climate change because of the impact it will have on rural communities. Uh, and yet somehow or another, the National Party is trying to reinvent itself as being on the side of the downtrodden um the downtrodden rural workers and it's like Mm. you've never been that party that's not who you are you're on the side of the massive agribusiness and the coal miners who are on the side of the world's laziest capitalists i mean ben and i have this joke all the time because ben went to business school everybody just so you know full disclosure ben had a great time at business school because if you're going to take down capitalism you better know how it works and like when you look at international management practice and, you know, international systems of enterprise and capital investment, all these things, you realise that the Australian capitalist class, Donald Horn, was completely right in the lucky country. You know, it's a it's a it's a country full of like second rate people who share incredible luck. We do have a really lazy capitalist class who rely on 
arbitrage and favourable decisions from government rather than any kind of innate entrepreneurial skill. I mean, this this hydrogen thing is a great example. This is entirely about maximising an opportunity to milk money from the taxpayer and use favourable conditions provided by government policy to make money. These aren't, you know... The, the American dream of the plucky self-starter who goes out and builds a fortune from their hands. It doesn't happen in Australia. You know, no. so much wealth in Australia is still controlled by the squatocracy families who had land wealth and agricultural wealth because they went onto someone else's land and shot everyone. Yeah, and I think this is this is where we're at now, right? Like <sighs> this is where we're at where we've got uh, we've got lazy capitalists. We've got the kind of slightly less lazy capitalists who who want to be entrepreneurial or see themselves as entrepreneurial, whether they really are or not. Um, you know, going, actually, I'm going to work with the unions and I'm going to work with community groups and I'm going to work with um, climate action organisations uh, and I'm going to go and talk to my mate Rupert about how we can all make a lot of money here. Rupert, like, who inherited uh, companies from his dad. As opposed who, to Packer, who inherited companies from his dad, whose dad inherited them from his dad. And who I'm sure. Or, if you, or, or uh, the lovely Rose Hancock. No, yeah, not Rose Hancock, <laughs> Gina Reinhardt. I get them mixed up. They're just like Van, a homogenous, massive grade. Who inherited Van, everything from her dad, you know. But, Van, my point here is I think if you look at the, the owners of Fortescue and Fortescue Future Industries, a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortescue, you'll see that there are significant holdings and these things all actually entwine, right? Like we like to think about Twiggy Forest and Jenna Reinhardt as being, you know, totally separate, independent billionaires who own the entirety of what they control. But the reality is usually that many of these people have entwined uh, arrangements and actually they control a thing that they don't own in its entirety uh, and there is some scope here for Twiggy to have gone to Rupert to say, you know, we're going to get these deals with New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania and we're going to end up making a lot of money and if you want to buy some shares, this is the price for shares. And if you buy those Ben, shares, you're not suggesting that the amazing turnaround on green energy and support for hydrogen in the Murdoch press has something to do with the financial interests of Rupert Murdoch, are you? Look, I haven't I haven't done the research on the ownership arrangements and if people wanted to do that and send that to me, I'd be very interested in that. If people wanted to do the research around the price movements uh, in uh, in Fortescue, or when the uh, when the Murdoch press changed its position, I'd be very interested in that as well. But we do need to move on because we do have a couple more stories to talk about, and there's an, an issue that's come up, and it got some good coverage yesterday around insecure work and the pandemic, and coming out of the pandemic, the the level of job insecurity, particularly for people in retail, but. I want to talk about it more broadly because this is part of this is actually part of the whole conversation, right? Like this is part of where we get to with climate action is we need jobs that are more secure, we need jobs that people can rely on into the future. And I know the Australian Union movement is running a really strong campaign around secure work. And you can go to AustralianUnions.org.au to check out that campaign. Uh, if you put a slash wow there, you can join your union as well. You should totally um, join your union, guys. Right? Join your union. So this research came out yesterday uh, from the Social Policy Research Centre uh, uh, in at part of the University of New South Wales, found that 41% of retail workers have unexpected shift changes, which make it difficult to maintain caring responsibilities. 60% have said they have no control over adjusting their start or finish times in the event that they have to care for a parent or a child. It's a one in 10 Australian workers work in the retail sector. It's a huge sector. Uh, it's female dominated sector. Uh, and the average wage is about $400 a week less than the average wage across the whole economy. And one in three of the women and almost as many men said they would work more hours if they had access to childcare. So there's a huge problem with job insecurity in retail. And and this research kind of gives such a really clear snapshot. And I know the, the SDA, the Union for Retail Workers, 
was talking about this research a lot yesterday, but it gives such a clear snapshot of the personal cost of insecure work. And I think it's important that we connect it back to the macro cost of insecure work as well, right? Because we've just come out of a pandemic and we're still having, or we're still in it really, and we're still having thousands of cases a day and we're still seeing people who are in retail, who are in insecure work, going to their jobs when they may be symptomatic because they don't have access to paid leave. They don't have the job security they need to be able to say, no, I'm not coming in today. It's against my interest. It's against the public health interest. I'm going to stay home. So it's a really, it seems bizarre that we're nearly two years into a pandemic, but we still have this incredible amount of job insecurity, people who don't have the flexibility to care when we need caring more than ever and don't have the capacity to say, I'm too sick to come to work without losing their job. Oh, well, I mean, that's the reality of insecure work. When I was working in hospo for years and years and years and years and years, like I used to come to work sick all the time. I had no choice. I couldn't afford to buy medicine to get better unless I worked when I was sick. So I was trapped in that endless cycle of pumping myself full of lem sip and coffee to get through an eight-hour shift so I would have enough money to buy more lem sip and coffee at the end of the – and you can – I destroyed my health. And that's in the days before there was an invisible killer virus that could take out your entire family. And on the subject of the invisible killer virus, one of the most devastating press appearances I've ever seen was – um, in the Victorian press conference today of a mother and her daughter, her teenage daughter, who talked about the experience of their family getting coronavirus and it was their daughter who ended up in intensive care. She was intubated through her neck. She was literally drowning, physically drowning. Her lungs were full of liquid from the illness. And if there are still people in your family or your circle who are like, oh, you know, it's a pandemic, it's, you know, it's a hoax, just sit them down and go watch this watch what happens to this family, listen to that mother's voice. My God, it was incredibly moving. And I just wanted, if anybody who knows them knows who I'm talking about, just thank them for their honesty today. It was really moving. But, I mean, this is reality of insecure work. That you, you just, of course, you have to keep going because you have no choice. You've got to buy the rent. You've got to buy food. And, and we, you come last and in that situation. Know, and, we, and we know that younger people are even more likely to be in casual employment, right? You know, that 17-year-old is even more likely to be, you know, in some ways exposing themselves and others to risk um, because This they is may- the largest demographic group of unvaccinated Australians, by the way, yeah. are younger Australians. And they are also the, the most likely to be in casual and insecure work. There was an article in 2020, it was on Triple J actually, it was an ABC um, article on Triple J that called it, this was in July 2020, so over a year ago, saying coronavirus is a pandemic of casual, insecure work. Uh, and it was obviously on Triple J because young people are more likely to be in casual and insecure work. The research that came out yesterday shows that there are there are still many, many, many people in casual and insecure work in their 40s, 50s, 60s, right? But certainly young people who are not vaccinated uh, are going to be uh, in, in a hugely compromised position. Oh. You know, the, the AMA made the point, right? The job insecurity creates a financial barrier for people to isolate, stay home when si- and stay home when they're sick, and it increases the likelihood of COVID being spread. Oh, it's and this is what we've seen, like in the United States. It's just ripped through like communities of insecure workers who work in poor industrial conditions and and don't. I mean, there's no safety net in America. Don't kid yourself. Like that's just not a thing that they have. And those are the people. Like there were extraordinary reports out of places like Meatworks where the virus was just like killing the workers, just killing them, absolutely flattening them. And, of course, you know, this is why vaccines are important, but fundamentally the vaccines have got to be part of, are part of a public health solution that also looks like how we structure our society and who gets exposed to the most risk and why and why there aren't safeguards built into that. And I want to talk about the situation around um, a caring relationship, 
for those of you who don't know, the reason why I'm in Sydney is my mother has cancer and she's 80 years old. That's not a great age to have a very positive prognosis of cancer. Um, and we're doing the best that we can. And I am here because I love her and I have I, I am honoured to have a caring responsibility towards her. But it is a hugely stressful conversation, like experience mm. as a stressful conversation. It's stressful for me to talk about this because I have uh, I'm in insecure work as I have been my entire working life. I exist on short-term contracts and obviously I have a portfolio career, meaning that I do more than one thing. I write plays, you know, I write books, I do journalism and sort of cobble together an income from all these different sources. I've been unbelievably lucky that I work and I think that um, that it's, it's no coincidence that all of my line managers tend to be women um, who mm. understand the complexities of caring relationships because a lot of them are also managing portfolio careers and children. And I've received a lot of sympathy and patience from my employers around, you know, deadlines and things because the situation is really complicated. Like my mother comes first. Of course she does. She's my mum. Um, and it, the, the stress of it, and this is me in a really supported situation. I mean, I still have to keep working if I want to get paid, but the stress of it has had an impact on my health and my productivity and it's been really difficult. Now let's put somebody, let's take somebody out of like, you know, bourgeois middle-class garbage that I do, I mean garbage that I'm really happy to do and work that I enjoy but garbage all the same, and let's look at somebody who's in a frontline service capacity, people who are literally holding the economy together through sheer like force of physical will, mm. and let's add caring responsibilities to that and let's look at totally depersonalised industrial systems where it's not negotiating with your line manager about what you physically can and can't do based on the commitments you have. It's about a roster system, some of which, depending on if you work for a multinational franchise, somebody in another country or even a computer in another country has Mm. come up with that roster system for you. You know, and the industrial conditions, anybody who's ever been at home and tried to work out how there was a sorry we missed you piece of paper around a package that was theoretically delivered while they were physically home like that's a that's a you know capitalist trick to minimize the actual time that those workers spend delivering meeting delivery commitments so they can be somewhere else you know sometimes it's like actually in a delivery company's interest to pretend you're not home so they don't have to spend the time physically delivering the package they can just mm. shove the note under your door and then drop it off somewhere else at a depot. Like there are all of these things that computers have calculated uh, create, you know, these economies of scale and the most profit for the company, these like inbuilt efficiencies. And the cost is people's health. The cost is the health of workers. Like my health is suffering because of the um, conditions that I've, like that I'm in. I'm extremely stressed about my mother. She is, you know, she is my priority and, um, it's a, it's a really really hard time, yeah. and and it just it just gets more and more complicated. The less agency you have in that situation, the the more desperate it becomes, the more stressful, the more prone you are to your health getting run down. And of course, it's like painting a having a target painted on your head that says give this person coronavirus. You know, it, like it's, really, it's so. It's really to to take that. To, Take your point, Van. Is you know I read an article today uh, where a woman had, was sacked. You know she got cancer, uh, she got breast cancer, and she was uh, trying to take her accrued leave, uh, personal leave, and annual leave to have treatment, and she was uh, she was sacked. Now she's been uh, she's been compensated uh, because the court, after two years of going through a court process has found that that was an unlawful act. But people, you know, that's someone who was in a full-time role, right? Like that's someone who had secure work. So there's an element here where if you've got secure work, at least you've got the protections of the court system, um, as imperfect as that may be, uh, which is partly why it's so important to be in your union because you can almost guarantee the union's going to be able to resolve that much quicker. Uh, But if you don't even have that, if, if you're being essentially rostered on by a computer in another country uh, and your line manager is essentially as powerless as you and really only getting 15 cents an hour more 
to to be in charge in inverted commas, then you're in a real sticky situation. And and I just want to say this because at the end of 2020, the Morrison government made a lot of noise about how they had created jobs, they were creating more jobs, we were going to come out of the pandemic with more jobs and, and it was all going to be fine. And there's the research that was done showed that not only were 60% of all the jobs created between May and December 2020 casual, more than half of casuals in Australia in 2020 were not getting the casual loading. This is the 25% that you're supposed to get to compensate you for not having access to leave, right? Like this, this kind of um, this kind of inconvenience amount that you're supposed to get on top of your wages. Like this was research done by David Peets, who's a well-respected academic. It made it very, very clear that casualization is not delivering benefits to workers. It's clearly delivering benefits to corporations, but for the vast majority of casual workers, they're not seeing the benefit. Now, there might be some industries and some sectors where, yep, okay, it works. Like you and I have portfolio careers, right? Like, yes, we have some job insecurity, but we're also at a, at a point in our career where we have some capacity to negotiate those terms a little more, right? So, that's that's not a terrible thing for, for us in our situation. But when you're talking about retail workers uh, who who are effectively told, you know, and sometimes literally told you could be replaced at any moment, um, who are, media speculates will be replaced by robots at any given moment, uh, you know, there's not a lot of agency, as you say. There's not a lot of being able to go to the boss and say, and this research that came out yesterday clearly shows 60% cannot adjust their start or finish times. You know, you and I, we we do our work to meet a deadline. We start and finish sort of, you know, we negotiate the deadline sometimes. 60%, you know, one in 10 workers in Australia. So that's one in 20 workers roughly in Australia has no control over when they start or finish work. None at all. And you know what enrages me, and obviously this is informed by the situation I'm in at the moment personally, like the argument that, and I'm just going to use the term misogynist because they're misogynists, the, the argument that misogynists have always used to explain the gender pay gap isn't any kind of, you know, systemic prejudice and bigotry built into the very fabric of our lives by 10,000 years of patriarchy. They're like, oh, yeah, well, just, you know, women choose to have children. Women choose women choose to have children because, you know, it's all of those women just independently spontaneously creating children of themselves um, as opposed to any involvement from from men whatsoever. Um, but, yeah, women choose to have children and, you know, they choose that relationship and that takes them out of the workforce and they get de-skilled. And this has always been the misogynist argument. And I'm like, do you know what people absolutely don't choose? To have parents. You do, yeah. do not get to choose to have parents. That's not a thing that happens. And, you know, and parents can be your biological parents. They can be the people who raised you. There, there are no, like, biological grounds that put people yeah. in one camp or another. But we have obligations to one another, and those obligations are important. In, uh, in past times we used to call them community or society and they're actually what make life meaningful. Like for all the stress of my situation at the moment, it is so important for me to be here with my mother Absolutely. for myself as well as for her and for you and for the rest of our family. Like this is the sacred obligation of family is to and look after one another. And the idea that we live in an economy that makes that hard to do, it's just like why Why do we live? <laughs> like yeah. I'm trying to understand to do, how for- a computer algorithm that tells you to be at a certain generic workplace for a generic franchise at a certain time, it, it has become more imp- like is, is the condition you have to meet to survive as opposed to fulfil the most sacred obligations of what it means to be a member of a family. Like, I think that's problematic. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right. It's incredibly problematic. And it flies, frankly, it flies in the face of the rhetoric of conservatives. This is the this is the inherent 
uh, cognitive dissonance of conservatism, right? It's supposed modern to be conservatism. All the genuine conservative. conservatives I know yeah. vote for progressive parties now yeah. because, because they don't see their values represented in the likes of Scott Morrison, who says the word family, and then you know we know what kind this of show. Kind of structure, and this is my point, right? Is that you can't, you cannot say that you're for family at the same time as say as endorsing, practicing voting for writing policy that creates an economic system that completely undermines and destroys family. And that's effectively what the the situation with insecure work in Australia is doing. And this is not like the other thing is too, we kind of get to a point sometimes in this country where there's a sort of sense of, oh, it's inevitable and that's just what the economy requires and, we ha- and you know, we have to do that because otherwise, you know, companies will go broke and then we'll all be poor and Let's be really clear. This is not something that's happening in Europe. This is not something that's happening in Norway. This is not something that's happening even in most of the UK, even in large parts of the US. We are an outlier in the mass casualization of our workforce. And and for us to, to think that we can't be a wealthy nation unless we sacrifice one in 10 workers or or 30% of our workforce to no leave entitlements, no access to paid leave, that they're allowed to get COVID and spread COVID and take COVID back to their families and that they can't care for their children or they can't care for their, their elderly parents when they're sick, that somehow or another this is the sacrifice that we as a community are imposing on parts of our community you know, and let's be really clear, that's often how it's portrayed, right, is that, you know, the, well, you know, good on them, these essential workers, the heroes of the pandemic, you know, the heroes, they're doing the sacrifices. Well, they don't have to be sacrificed. You, that These are, these people, the retail workers, the hospitality workers, you know, childcare, aged care workers, you know, disability support workers, they don't have to be sacrificed, for us to be a successful, to have a successful economy. And in fact, we will be more successful if they have more job security. If, if they're able to care for their elderly parents, if they're able to care for their children, they will have better outcomes. They will be more productive, not less productive. They will create more value, not destroy value, because they are participating rather than being imposed upon. And and that's fundamentally why I get really bent out of shape about it, right? Like it's not it's not okay. It's not okay for our political leaders to say, you know, frontline workers are the heroes of the pandemic and then leave them with casualized insecure work. But that's- they just don't they don't see us. And you know, if you've ever worked in one of those industries that the that the tourists just think are expendable, like, and I'm talking specifically about hospo and retail and and care um, industry jobs, right? They don't see us, like they physically. And I can tell you this from working behind a bar for so long, is that you're not human to these people. You know, the idea that you even have a family, like you're some kind of service providing robot. And I think that's why. I mean, I get really emotional talking about this stuff because I have such like palpable physical memories of what it was like to spend eight hours serving people who didn't fundamentally recognise my humanity and the physical toll that took on me and how difficult it was. And, you know, you can have this conversation with anybody in hospitality or in retail or in a caring um, job about what it's like to just be invisible to the people who are using your services and, you know, and not and, and thinking... And let's be really honest about this. There is a sense of entitlement that goes on in these policy spaces. The guys who invent things like RoboDebt and, you know, who say things like, well, you know, um, we've got to keep labour costs down or the economy will slow. And, you know, this economically illiterate fantasy prejudice garbage that they go on with. It, it fundamentally comes from a place of thinking that only they have the right to consider themselves human or important or the economy, that there's a fundamental belief that if you're working in retail or hospitality or caring role and, you know, various other capacities within the economy, but these are the ones where you really, really Mm. see Mm. it. And it's no coincidence that these industries are all dominated by women. I mean, come Mm. on. 
they they genuinely think that it's like a failing of character or enterprise on your part that you have to do that job that they have made superior decisions around their education or you know just their daring do or their bootstrap strapping up garbage that they go on with. You start to see it then, you know, leak into, um, and we won't go into it in detail today, but you, you think about the the explosion in ABN and subcontracting in in things like aged care, disability support. Farm you know, labouring. Farm, farm labouring. Farm labouring, ABNs in farm labouring. This idea that, you know, you're going to be your own business because you're going to be your own boss, but you're going to turn up when I tell you to turn up. You're going to leave when I tell you to leave. You're going to do exactly what I want you to do, exactly how I want you to do it. You're only going to get paid the amount that I tell you you're going to get paid, and if you don't like any of that, then you're out on your ear. Like, you know, this kind of fallacy of of uh, entrepreneurialism, and you discussed it earlier, right? Like Australia is not – the Australian entrepreneurial class – it traditionally has not actually been very entrepreneurial. So for that class of people to have spat out this generation of liberal politicians who now want, you know, care providers to be entrepreneurs uh, is just sort of this bizarro fantasy world where I feel like the secondhand used car salesman is trying to sell me a bridge in Brooklyn. Like, yeah, give I'm, back I'm the money daddy it. gave you, darling. Like- <laughs> I'm just not buying it. Yeah, but you know what I mean? I'm just like, I'm not going to take this from these people. I am not going to be, I'm not going to be denigrated and undermined by a bunch of, you know, trust fund brats, frankly. Like the the beginning of, you know, we've been talking a lot about Freedom Week this week and liberation. And let me tell you, Sydney's not feeling particularly liberated. It's feeling paranoid and insecure. And conversations I've had with retail workers on Monday who were freaking out that everything could have gone Thunderdome really quickly and, you know, they weren't necessarily completely... um, you know, confident with arrangements that have been made and were we ready and were they safe and things like that. Like liberation actually begins at the point where you go enough of this, enough of this attitude that I'm somehow your inferior because you look down on work that I do that you couldn't function in your own life if I didn't do it. And that's, you know, I developed a very keen sense of that when I was like, cleaning up after the kind of disgusting Tory voting scumbags who used to vomit all over the bathroom in the bar that I ran, like, you know, and that's really where it starts is that belief that things don't actually have to be like this and the idea that these, you know, professional class of entitled inherent rich brats would dare, you know, insist that this situation had to perpetuate, like, I've, like it, it, it changes you that moment of awareness. Going, yeah, actually, no. I'm going to do everything I can in my life to take this down. And that is why we are union members because <sighs> it's through that solidarity, that collective action, that working together, that we realise we're not alone. Right? Like listening to this podcast, I hope that if you felt, you know, insecure because things were reopening and you weren't sure about the training or asking about vaccine certificates or people checking in or you're doing a caring role and you're not sure about the protective equipment that you're entitled to, I hope that listening to this podcast, you have come to understand that just because somebody tells you it is this way doesn't mean it has to be that way. And you have a right to be safe at work. You have a right to dignity in your work. You have a right to dignity in your life and that together, together we will we will deliver that for us all, and and that's why that's why unions exist. That's why we keep talking about how important they are, because that's what unionism gives us. It gives us it gives us such a sense that we are not alone, because you know when you think about these numbers from this research, what this tells us is really clearly. That part of the algorithms is to make people feel alone, is to make people feel like they don't have connection with others in their work. That they don't have that, any power. That they don't have any power. You know, that they, they can't even organise because everybody's on a different shift. I mean, these things are deliberate. 
they have been developed by generations of management consultants looking for clever, crafty ways to dissuade people from joining unions. That, and that's literally true. Like if you look at yeah. the way that a lot of major corporations that run franchises structure their staffing relationships, one of the, the reasons why everybody's on these random shifts and these different shifts is so a sense of community can't build a, in with at a workplace with co-workers deciding collectively based on mutual trust and understanding that they could work together and advocate for different. If everybody's on a different shift and that community doesn't build, well, that's in your interest as a major employer on the on the spreadsheet by which you calculate your profit margins because those people are less likely to join a union. So defy them. Join the goddamn union. Call everyone you know. Write it on Facebook. Join the union, www.australianunions.org.au backslash wow. Do it because why are we putting up with this? That's right. Look, we need to have a bit of good news because we've just, you know, we've just explored some. Oh, I'm so angry. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, just, absolutely. I'm, I'm really angry. And just the whole rhetoric of freedom, freedom. Oh, I'm having freedom in New South Wales. It's like, really? Because I'm terrified out of my mind. Actually, I feel absolutely no sense of confidence in the leadership in inverted commas of the new New South Wales weirdo in charge. I, I absolutely do not feel like he, he really, I just don't feel like he cares whether I'm safe or not. But Van, let's talk about some good news, right? Because you've got some good news about plastics. Tell us. Yeah, and I love good news about plastics. How absolutely overjoyed am I about good news about plastics? Because yeah. I have nightmares about beaches choked with plastic and birds but choking let's talk on them. About the good news that you've got about the good plastics. news. The good news has been um, the good news is that a French company uh, have developed a technology, and this is so beautiful. This is just like if we take care of the planet, the planet will absolutely positively take care of us. Yeah. Um, they have developed a technology where they use leaves, yes, leaves from trees. Yeah. They have extracted an enzyme that leaves produce and modified it slightly in order to uh, to break down plastics into component parts. So currently the way that we recycle plastics is really nasty and inefficient. So um, we collect a bunch of plastic and then we mush it into very small pieces and make new things out of it. But effectively it's a mechanical process of recycling that has to do with chopping plastic up into lots of bits and making new things. What these French guys have done, they're called carbios. Um, They have taken this leaf enzyme and they're processing plastic through it and it means that they can break the plastic down to the stuff that plastic is before it's plastic, meaning that they can reconstitute it like a new product. And the reason why this is so amazing is because it it means that it, 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 like, it gets plastic out of the environment it doesn't mean it, it means that we're using a lot less energy like yeah. this is their big thing it's an automatic 30 percent carbon cut in the way that they actually produce that's amazing. Uh, that they recycle this stuff because they're not doing it mechanically um they're doing it chemically and they're doing it um in a facility that's the size of a cargo truck yeah and that cargo truck can uh process a hundred thousand pet bottles a day like that size facility. Okay, that, that, that means every person drinking a bottle of, you know, soft drink in the MCG every day can be processed. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, really it is. Amazing. It's completely amazing. And then that the the material that they create has value yeah. because it can be reprocessed. It's, it doesn't denigrate in value. And this is the thing that the current recycling systems we have are really unappealing because they're expensive and the products that they produce are not necessarily what people want, et cetera. And, I mean, it's just fantastic. And there's a lot of research going on in this space. They've found, a, you know, different researchers have found a wax worm that eats plastic and turns it That's into great. worm poo and puts it back in the environment. And the French guys, Cambios, have said the thing about the technology we're developing is it's a start and using sort of enzyme technology to break plastic down 
we can if we start if we start doing this kind of processing now there will be technological innovation and refinement and we will get to the point where we can turn plastics back into the natural substances that they were but we've got to start and they're talking to L'Oreal and PepsiCo and Nestle not one of my favorite companies oh. but this might buy them one or two points um close to redemption um to yeah. a woman who has boycotted Nestle products since the very early 1990s um as you well know and you yeah. Love yeah, living with yeah. me. You love it. You love the boycott <laughs> yes, register. Yes, it's yes, one of your yes. favorite things. But I just think that this is great and is. all power to this French company and would just solve so many problems. And because there are carbon miles in um, plastic recycling as well, that, you know, plastic gets shipped and we had yeah. that big crisis in Australia that China started refusing taking our recycling and everybody thought that was so good and that the warehouse is full of garbage. Well, if we can decentralise plastic recycling, that's a massive carbon saving as well. So thank you, people of France. It's a hugely positive piece of news on which to end this, our 100th recording for the week on Wednesday between this. I just love people who solve problems. I'm into those people. Between this and the weekend wrap, we've done 100 recordings. Thank you all so much for sticking with us throughout. It's now been just over a year. Uh, You know, there's lots of good news stories in the world. I know that we get into detail about some of the more difficult, some of the more unappealing topics. Uh, We do try and make sure that at the end of every show we have the good news story. Uh, this message is entirely for me. Everybody, <laughs> just so you know, this is entirely directed at, at someone's partner who's a bit grumpy today and I take that on board. I do passionately <laughs> believe in the right of plastic to be effectively recycled. Which is fantastic news. So please do share this episode. If you have enjoyed it, let us know. If you haven't enjoyed it, well, you don't have to listen to the next one. It's a free country. <laughs> Do come, contact on. us on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, do leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. Apparently, if you leave comments on Apple Podcasts, it helps us in the algorithms. So we do ask you to do that. Don't forget to join your union. It's so important. I also want to give just a quick shout out to our good friends and colleagues, uh, Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, who do the On The Job podcast, which is the official yep. Australian Union's podcast. They've, lovely people. They've got some lovely, lovely people. Some great interviews with with frontline health workers who are, you know, staring down the barrel of the pandemic every each and every day, getting up and doing that work. And our solidarity goes out to them. Uh, so onthejobpodcast.com.au is how you can uh, catch those stories. They, you know, you got you got to hear these stories. Like Van said, um, you know, the press conferences they're getting some of those stories out, but on the job podcast is doing some really really great work there too thank you so much for listening to us it's been a long episode it's been a long 2021 and we've still got three months to go i love Mm -hmm. you vanny oh i miss you terribly you are just the greatest and not having you around i've got to say is pretty tough i miss you too but you are the best and uh i've got to say everybody it hasn't it's not been the easiest few months of my life and just the incredible love and support we get from the audience of the show just it just means the world to ben and i it really does and it has made what hasn't been easy um feel like a very supported experience and I'm personally grateful for that. Thank you.